So whether this is your first time here at Midweek or you've been coming every single time, the, pra- uh, the book we've been going through has been the book of John. Uh, and there's really a, th- a main message that John has been trying to drive home. Now, uh, whenever it comes to telling stories, uh, you, you know, there's always an introduction or a preface that we look to, and we can read those and say, okay, great, that's, I know where we're going here. Well, well, in the book of John, what John does is that in chapter 20, near the end, in, in uh, verses, let me uh, pick it out here real quick, in verses 30 through 31, what John does is John tells us that everything he has just recounted, everything in the book of John about Jesus has been written so that we may believe. Everything in the gospel of John has been written so that we may believe. It's not just a defense uh, of who Jesus was and his divinity. It's not just a, a historical account of Jesus. Rather, this book is intended for our purpose so that we, we, we may believe in Jesus. And the passage that we're in tonight is going to be in, in John chapters 2, 23 through the end of chapter 3. Now, I know that we... Uh, uh, talked about the end of chapter two last week, but it's going to serve more or less as a prologue for us tonight in understanding, and it flows really well um, through chapter three. All of it is connected together, and again, all of it, the whole purpose of John is written so that we may believe. Now, I think that one of the main things that our passage is going to tell us tonight is that it tells us who we are in relation to Jesus. Our passage tells us who we are in relation to Jesus. And there are sort of three movements here that are in our text, um, and each of us, or each of them offers us an explanation of who we are. Uh, But it doesn't just tell us who we are. Keep that in mind. If the main point of the scripture of of this passage was to tell us just who we are, then I think we, we wouldn't have to spend more than maybe five minutes talking about it. But rather, it tells us who we are in relation to Jesus. And the passage picks up at the end of chapter 2. Now, in, in chapter 2, Jesus begins his earthly ministry uh, at the wedding of Cana. Um, many of you are likely familiar with the story of Jesus turning water into wine. That, that marks the beginning of his ministry. We, we see that. And it's one of the, or the first miracle that he does, I should say. Um, and then the wedding is also followed by a story of Jesus cleansing the temple and driving the temple out, or uh, overturning the tables and all that, because the temple had no longer become a place of worship, but rather, as Jesus says, a place of trade. Um, and so we pick up here, uh, and I hope that gives a little bit of context for you. So as we look at the words tonight and who we are in relation to Jesus, remember, these are written so that you may believe in Jesus. This is all written about Jesus for our benefit. And that means that these words, they have a goal. They have a purpose. They want to persuade us of something. So let's see what John says about Jesus and who we are in relation to him so that we may believe in him. Uh, to explain this passage, I kind of, if you're a note taker, this will be beneficial to you. I have three kind of main points that we can track here. Um, so the first is going to be in, in chapter 2, it'll be 23 through the end of chapter 2 there. That'll be point number one. And that's just going to simply be what Jesus knows us to be, or what Jesus says about us, knows about us, however you interpret that, what Jesus knows about us. And then the second point that is going to be, uh, that helps in our outline is going to be chapter 3. Uh, verses 1 through 21. And that's going to be outlined as what Jesus says to us about him. And then chapter, or the third point that we'll have is going to be chapter 3, 22 through the very end. And that's just going to simply be who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. 
So to pick up here, I want us to go ahead and start in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Um, so th- also, I'll go ahead and preface and say, this evening is going to go a lot smoother if we keep our eyes down at our Bibles throughout most of it. <laughs> and so track along with us as we are reading through Scripture together, and that's the best, most profitable thing that we can do. All right, so let's start in chapter 2, verse 23. Uh, it says this. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In this first cluster of verses, John tells us that when Jesus was in Jerusalem performing many signs, people began to believe in him. At face value, that's an incredibly great thing. But then Jesus does this sort of weird thing where he doesn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them. We might kind of see those two pass or those uh, see that you know people believing in Jesus and then Jesus not entrusting himself to them in contention with one another. We're like that's in conflict. That's actually not the case at all here. See. Like I said, we have almost a prologue in this, and it's going to tell us about who Jesus says we are. Um, In just a few short verses, Jesus ultimately shows us that the people are not believing in him because of who he is, but rather what he's doing for them. Their belief, at best, is superficial. They're believing in Jesus because he's performing many signs and miracles for them, not because they believe in him as the Messiah. They approach Jesus as one that they can simply benefit from. And now, I, I want to pause and say that we can and do certainly benefit from Jesus. But here, Jesus is being treated more or less like a genie in a bottle. Um, okay, great, Jesus is performing miracles. He's healing me of my sickness. He's, you know, uh, you know, turning rocks into bread or whatever it might be that Jesus was doing. Any sort of the miracle that Jesus has talked about. Um, that's the vibe of what the people are viewing him as. I'll believe in Jesus so long as things go well for me. I'll believe in Jesus so long as he gives me what I want and what I need. So Jesus, seeing this clearly, and that he was not loved for who he was, but what he was doing for them, does not entrust himself to them. Now what this means is that the belief that they had was not one that was saving. He did not reveal himself to them in a saving way because he knew that what was in their hearts was not receptive to him. They did not want him for who he was. So in this first little prologue here, we see that our natural disposition towards Jesus is not one of right standing. It's one of enmity. And that's not something that we just sort of concocted. right? That's not something that cranky and dead theologians from a couple hundred years ago came up with. It's actually what Jesus thinks of us. See, we can say that we're in right standing with God all we want, but our perspective does not determine what Jesus thinks of us. The very true reality is that Jesus determines if we are at enmity with him, not us who determines if we're at enmity with him. And our hearts, according to Jesus right here, they're not naturally right with him. That's what Jesus knows about us. That's what Jesus thinks about us. We're not naturally in good standing. We're actually at enmity. So that passage serves as a bit of a prologue here. Now I'm deceiving you a little bit because that point was incredibly short. So we're going to move on to our second point now, and that'll be in chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. And this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time. And uh, this is when we begin to get really into the two primary movements of of figuring out who Jesus is and and what he, uh, and how he thinks of us and how he uh, offers us salvation. Um, So here we go. 
this first movement here, this, or the second point here, but this first movement between these uh, passages says this. Um, this is the first one that details Jesus' inner, or let me back up, I'm getting all jumbled up here. Uh, the first point here is that Jesus, his interaction is going to be with Nicodemus. Now, many of you are likely familiar with this story. Everyone in this room is familiar with at least one verse in this passage and in this chunk of verses, and I know that to be the case. Does everyone know the verse John 3, 16? All right, let's say it in unison here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, you all knew that off the top of your heads. There we go. Um, So in this passage, what happens is that a Pharisee named Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night with loads of questions. Jesus and Nicodemus, they share this conversation, and Jesus tells him how someone can be saved. Uh, The section then concludes with commentary on how God has loved the world. And so how we'll approach this here is we'll, we'll tackle verses 1 through 15 and then 16 through 21. So I'll go ahead and read verses 1 through 15. And I want everyone to look down at your Bibles. If you don't have one, look under the Bible of someone next to you. And let's read the words of Jesus here. And this is what, the word, is what Jesus says. He says this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, meaning he was a religious man. Uh, He was not unfamiliar with the Old Testament, and in fact, he was more familiar with it than any of us in this room will ever be in the course of our lifetimes, most likely speaking. Uh, He was an expert in it. He was was a main teacher of Israel. He knew the, the Old Testament forward and backwards. He was a prominent religious leader. He was familiar with the Word of God. And so he approaches Jesus by night, under the cover of darkness, to ask Jesus questions. And he tells Jesus, he says, we, you know, the Pharisees, we know that you are a teacher from God. No one can do these signs that you're doing unless you're, from, unless you're God. And then Jesus then responds by saying that no one can enter into the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. Think about the audacity of that. You're looking at the religious leader in the face and saying, no one can enter into heaven unless he's born again. I, maybe this will construe maybe a false image. That's the equivalent of Jesus saying that to 
uh, perhaps like the Pope, for example, you know, we tend to think of the guy who's got all the religion together, right? We look at him, that's the equivalent of what Jesus is doing, correcting someone who we might attribute as having that great honor or, or whatever. And I understand we're Protestant. That's just a commentary on um, a commentary on the magnitude of Nicodemus there. So this confuses Nicodemus when Jesus says that we must be born again. And Nicodemus, you know, it's easy for us to look at him and, and laugh at his question, but he asks, is it possible, do I have to be born physically again, go back into the womb? Um, which I understand can maybe make us a little bit gross thinking about that. But Jesus quickly responds to correct his thinking and that it's not about being physically born again. Jesus tells him that unless we are born of water and of spirit, we cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of spirit is spirit. <laughs> Don't be surprised at that, Nicodemus. You're the one who's unfamiliar with the law. You should, be the, you should understand this. Um, and he rebukes him later for that. But, so what this means, that we must be born of, of water and spirit, is not that we are born at some sort of re-physical birth or whatever, right? I mean, my mom would hate that. Um, and then somehow some sort of pseudo-new spiritual birth. What Jesus is rather saying is that we must have an entirely new spiritual birth. You must be a new person, a new creation. So when Jesus uses the phrase that we must be born of the water and of spirit, what he's doing there is, as he's talking about being born again, is he's actually using a concept uh, that is written and called back to in, e in the prophet Ezekiel about being born again. So let's actually turn to Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 27 to see this. And if you need... Uh, it's okay to look in the table of contents to find Ezekiel. It's going to be right after Jeremiah. It's a massive Old Testament book there. So let's turn to Ezekiel 36, and we'll be in 24 through 27, or 25 through 27. And this is what Jesus is pulling this from. I hope that this also helps you see that the Old Testament is not disconnected from the New Testament. It's intended to help us believe. And so let me go ahead and read it for us. In Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, Jesus says this, I will, or the, the prophet Ezekiel says this, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is what Jesus is, is pulling from. He's saying, Nicodemus, you're the one who's familiar with the Old Testament. You're the one who's familiar with all the prophets. Being born again is right there in the Old Testament, right there for you to understand. So when someone is born again, they receive a spiritual cleansing is what Jesus says. They are being made washed clean. That is what Jesus is referencing here when he says we must be born of water and the Spirit. And what this means is that apart from Jesus, we're not clean. Apart from Jesus, we're not pure. This is what Jesus sees within the heart of man. If we look back at the prologue there, remember Jesus knows what's in their hearts. He knows what's in our hearts. We're not clean. We're not pure. We must be born again of water and the spirit. Now, at this point, Nicodemus is thinking, oh, man, like, what, if we're all filthy and we're, you know, he's the religious teacher, and he's, what hope is there then? So then Jesus continues on, and he says that the wind blows where it wishes, but we do not where it is going and, and what it is. So what Jesus is doing is telling us whenever the wind blows and where it wishes and we hear it sound, but we, do know, you know, we don't know where it comes from or where it goes, 
That's what he's telling us what faith is like. The rebirth is spiritual, wrought by the Holy Spirit. You know, we can't see the Holy Spirit. We can't see it, him, but we can see the effects of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I, I can't see wind. I don't know about you. I can't see wind, but I can see when a tree has been blown over in a hurricane. That's kind of the picture that Jesus is painting for us here. Right? Faith is not something that is physical outward. It's not doing all of the, the perfect obedience to the law. You know, actually, faith is something internal and inward. It's spiritual cleansing that we cannot see that only comes from the Holy Spirit. And it's at this point that Nicodemus admits and he says, I don't understand this. So Jesus responds to him by saying, you're the main teacher of Israel and you don't get it? If I have told you earthly things and you don't get it, then how can you understand heavenly and spiritual things? Now the earthly things here that Jesus is referencing is not, you know, it's not tradition. It's not uh, obedience and rules. What Jesus is referring to here is the new birth. If Nicodemus cannot grasp what it means to be reborn, then there is no chance that he will be able to understand anything else that Jesus says. And that is not Jesus trying to be difficult. It's not Jesus trying to be enigmatic. I'm trying to use that word ironically. It's just a matter of fact. If you don't understand what it means to be reborn, then you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And it is in line with that new birth that Jesus says that he must be lifted up like the bronze serpent in the wilderness so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. In, our, in order for our spiritual rebirth, Jesus must be lifted up. Now, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the book of Numbers. If you've been going to UBC for the last few weeks, you understand that that's what the sermon series we've been going through. Absolutely enthralling. Uh, No one has ever done a sermon series on the book of Numbers before that I've heard. Um, And what Jesus is doing whenever he talks about him being lifted up, just like Moses and the bronze serpent, is he's actually referencing the book of Numbers, of all things. (laughs) This is in reference to Numbers chapter 21, verses 8 through 9, where the Israelites have wandered from God and have rebelled against him. And so what God has done is, in this story with the Israelites, think all the way back in Numbers here, um, God has sent snakes, a whole multitude of snakes, to punish the Israelites. They're being bitten, they're being poisoned, they're dying for their rebellion. But God in his mercy makes a way for them to be healed. So what he does is he has Moses craft a bronze serpent and wraps it around a pole and he sticks the pole up and anyone who would just look up at the serpent, the bronze serpent would be healed from their sin or from their, from the serpent bite. As Ed was, as I was walking in with uh, Ed, uh, Ray, who's sitting right here in the front, we love brother Ed. um, He was talking to me about Old Testament gospel And could it get any clearer than that? What Jesus is saying is to be reborn is we must look upon him high and lifted up as the ones who have been bitten by the serpent, who know the sting of death, who who have impending death coming upon us. All we must do is look up at the cross of Christ and be saved and be healed. But we'll get to that more. So it is as Jesus says this that we read the most well-known and beloved verse in verses of the whole Bible. So let me go ahead and read these uh, few verses here. And it's at this point, uh, after we have seen these things, after we have this concept of Jesus being lifted up, that Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Praise God for that. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Keep looking down at your Bibles. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What this text means is that God has loved us and has not sent Jesus into the world to condemn us, but rather to save us. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Apart from his saving us, we stand at odds with God. Our hearts are not pure. They're filthy. We have been bitten by the serpents. We have poison rushing through our veins. It's a matter of moments before we're dying, and all we have to do is look up at the, at the Christ on the cross and believe in him, and that's how we can be healed. God has sent us has sent Jesus in the world not to be a a condemnation but rather a lifeline God loves us and so he tells us that we have a great need you have been bitten but I have the remedy for that and it's Christ we have a great need but also a great savior we have loved the darkness but there is a great light in Christ and he has come for us and this is the hope that we have offered in Jesus and Jesus does not begrudgingly stand there offering it to us he is not tossing salvation to us No, he comes to us in love, wanting to give us life abundant. Jesus is not here to condemn, but to deliver. If you wouldn't hold yourself out to be a Christian, uh, then I want to offer this passage to you. Um, I'm sure you've heard it before. Maybe you feel desensitized to it, um, overly familiar with it. But listen to the words of Jesus here. God has loved us in such a way that he gave us Jesus, his very son, so that if we believe in him, we will not perish, but we will have eternal life. This eternal life, it's not something that's vague, ethereal, mystical. It's real. The perishing is not something that is speculation about the afterlife. Oh, I wonder, is hell real? I don't know, whatever. Rather, there is a real spiritual death that those who stand in opposition to God will face. The people bitten by the snakes in numbers, they knew that death was real. But they also knew that life in God was also real. They looked up to the serpent and they were healed. Look up to Jesus on the cross who paid for our sins who sprinkled our hearts clean, who has washed us with his blood, and believe in him, and you too can be healed. Believe in Jesus, not because he can do good things for you, not because he can get you your, you know, get out of hell free card, but believe in him because he has come to save you and to love you. The one who loves you the most will make the greatest sacrifice for you. And Jesus, in coming down and being raised up on the cross, has made the greatest sacrifice for you. Believe in him because Jesus is the one who loves you the most. All right. Is there anything sweeter than that? Let's keep moving here. Let's go ahead and and read about John the Baptist now. And so now we're going to go ahead and shift And let's think about verses 22 through 36 here. 
I'll go ahead and read it for us. Let's all look down at our Bibles and let's follow along with what the Word of God says. <laughs> after this, after, after this glorious passage, this glorious hope that we have, uh, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at uh, Enon near Salim. Good, I uh, took a stab at it because water was plentiful there, and, because, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Alrighty. So this is the last movement here. So this, is, this will be point number three for us. Um, this, this is who Jesus is. Um, Jesus and his disciples come into this Judean region here, and they begin baptizing a baptism of repentance. Now, if you, you know, we're in a Baptist church and we hear the term baptism quite a bit. I just want to let you know that this is a predecessor to the baptism that we practice today. This is uh, a, a baptism of repentance here. This is not the exact same thing. Um, and uh, yeah, so John the Baptist, not John the author of this book. There's multiple Johns here, I know. Um, but John the Baptist uh, has some disciples um, who followed him and they begin to speculate about what purification is. So this, they see Jesus and they're like, hey, this dude who you bore witness about, he's over here, he's baptizing. I thought that was your thing. That's basically what they're doing. They're, they're speculating about Jesus and his posse baptizing, which, and I also want to note, this is the only account in the Gospels of Jesus baptizing. Um, and it's likely that Jesus himself was not baptizing, uh, but his disciples were baptizing. Um, could you imagine the sort of elitism that would have caused if oh, I was baptized by Jesus in my repentance, right? It's unlikely that Jesus was doing that in more of his group there. Anyways, that's beside the point. Um, so his disciples, they're seeing Jesus and his disciples baptized over there, and they're wondering, what does real purification look like then? And what does real repentance look like then? I thought that when I got dunked by you, that counted. <laughs> After all, if John is baptizing, and it's important because he's preparing the way for Jesus, and then Jesus is coming and is doing the exact same thing and baptizing again, how many more baptisms are we going to need? How much more will we need to be purified? Who has the right purification? Do I need to just keep doing this over and over again? At this speculation, John actually does not engage with any sort of arguing. He doesn't try and get into any theological debates here. Right? So they're sitting here and they're saying, Jesus, or John, what's, what's going on with Jesus and his baptism? And John's not trying to you know, pontificate and speculate. John's response is it's quite astounding. Rather, John quickly says that a person cannot be given anything unless it's from heaven. 
John straight up admits, he's like, my ministry has come from heaven here. Um, John is not concerned about his ministry because he knows that it has come from heaven and that his purpose was to point people ahead to Christ. So with Christ here, he has no need to be in contention with his ministry at all. John is completely happy. What does he say right there? He says, therefore, this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Look at the humility of John. Isn't that marvelous? John describes himself as a friend excited for the bridegroom. He gets that the show is not about him at all. He, so he says that, yeah, like I said, that great quote right there, this joy of mine is complete. Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Why must John decrease and Jesus increase? Well, the answer is, is in the commentary that John, the author, then gives right after that. If you'll see there, it's not in quotation. So we know that that's John, the, uh, the apostle John, inserting his commentary that Jesus comes from above and is above all. Jesus is who the earth belongs to. Uh, and Jesus, um, yeah, he's the one who comes from heaven. Um, Jesus is the one who bears witness to what he's seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Um, the Father loves the Son. <laughs> All things have been given into the Son's hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Jesus is the one who holds eternal life in his hands. That's why John must decrease and why Jesus must increase. The Father loves the Son, and it's in him that everyone find, who believes finds eternal life. So what we learned about ourselves in the prologue is that we are at enmity with God. Our hearts are corrupt. What we see in the Nicodemus sequence is that even the most learned and religious people, the ones who get it right everywhere, are not saved. They must be reborn. And in the case of John here, it seems like they will never get pure enough. Like the bar is continually moving. If that's the case, then what hope is there for anybody, right? If the people who get it right aren't saved, if even the guys who baptize enough aren't getting it right and they're not saved, like what, what is the hope that we have? Well, I want us to note that in each sequence, it is Jesus, well, first of all, it is Jesus who holds life in his hands. In the prologue, it's Jesus doing the miracles, Jesus doing the healing. In the Nicodemus sequence, it's Jesus who offers life and healing. And in this John sequence, it is Jesus who makes us pure and gives us life. The healing, purifying, life-givingness that Jesus is offering us is accomplished solely on the cross. And in the story with Nicodemus, Jesus says that he, like, like recall that, he says that he's gonna be raised up like that bronze serpent. And one of the things that I think I really want us to understand is that that bronze serpent um, would have been wrapped around a pole. And it's likely that that pole would have been T-shaped to hold up the bronze serpent there. And so what we have is a picture of the cross and that bronze serpent just wrapped around it. All of us who look up at that cross will not die. <laughs> we will not die like the Israelites did. So to the person who is struggling to keep up and who feels like the bar is always moving, you don't have to keep up. Jesus offers himself to you. To the person who thinks they have it all together and are fine, because you know the Bible well, right? You were raised in a church, you're esteemed as the one who has it all together. <coughs> Parker. And no, I'm kidding. Um, you're the one who has it all together. I want to challenge you to reflect on the fact that Jesus does not have to take those who have it together. Or Jesus does not... Let me back up. Again, jumbling my words here. I apologize. I want to challenge you to reflect on the fact that Jesus does not take those who have it all together, but those who are broken. Right? What does he say? He says, I've not come for the healthy, but for the sick. And maybe, soberly, Reflect on if you truly are in Christ in the first place and you're not just great at doing Christian things. Do you abide in Christ or do you abide around Christ? <laughs> There's a difference there. 
And so then lastly, I also want to offer to the person who feels neutral towards Jesus, who might be sitting in this room, who liked the crowds at the beginning, when uh, liked Jesus because he offers good morals, he's a good teacher, he helps in your time of need, but you don't prioritize him in any other aspect of your life? Have you considered where you stand in relation to Jesus? You know, what this passage tells us here, what John 3 outlines, is that we have to be born again. We have to be born again. To enter the kingdom of God, rebirth is essential. It does not matter if you are indifferent to Jesus, if you are hyper-religious or somewhere in the middle, you must be born again. No one can enter into the kingdom of God unless you have placed your faith in Christ. But God, being rich in mercy and deep in his love for the world, gave us a way in which we would not be left alone, dead, or struggling. He has offered us forgiveness freely and totally in Jesus. And this comes through repenting, placing your faith in Christ, and submitting everything to him. Jesus must increase in your life, and you must decrease. And, and herein lies the great mystery of life. The less tightly we hold on to ourselves, the more tightly we hold on to Christ, the fuller and more joyful our lives will be, the more filled our lives will be, because our lives will not be filled, or they will be filled increasingly so with the source of life. For your joy to be complete, it comes at losing your life while gaining everything in Christ. The more you decrease and the more Christ increases, the more complete you will find your life to be because your life can only be completed in Jesus. And the sweet exchange has already happened because Jesus thought himself as nothing by going to the cross on our behalf, taking our sin. It, it was us that deserved to be up on that cross. But instead, Jesus went there on our behalf. And then, out of the goodness of, him, of himself, he gave us the righteous goodness that he had and, and uh, he passed it along to us as though we were righteous. And so the purpose of these stories here are so that we may believe in Jesus. And we believe in Jesus because he's, because he's tangible evidence that God loves us while we did not love him. These words are written to us so that we, we may believe in Jesus. So I, again, I think it's fitting here that we just close, and I want us to reread 331 through 36 of who this Jesus is. So everyone look down at your Bibles. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from a heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son of God, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. These words, they were written so that you may believe. Believe in Jesus, who is above all, and who utters the words of God and gives us the Holy Spirit without measure. Believe in him, and you'll find your life.